Hello and welcome to the latest series of the English Network Revision Podcasts. We're now focusing on JB Priestley's and Inspector Calls. Today you're joined by me, Alex. And me, Ted. And we're going to start with the context of the play, uh, the historic, social and political ideas that informed its creation. So with an Inspector Calls, unlike a Shakespeare play or one of the poems that you see in the Power and Conflict anthology that we've looked at, and Inspector Calls is very much about the message first and the art is, is secondary. Um, it's a polemic, it's a one-sided piece of propaganda blasting capitalism, the British class system and all the inequalities that they necessarily generated and arguably generate today. Probably not arguably. Um, this episode will, will aim to provide the context necessary to understand this text for what it is, um, allowing you to evaluate the characters both as human beings, but also as devices um, for political point scoring. Um, so to start off with, Ted, you're going to provide us with an overview of Edwardian society yep. um, and kind of like an, overlook, an overview of the rise of socialism in, British, in 20th century Britain. Yep. Uh, so obviously it'll just be uh, like a whistle-stop tour. Um, but, you know, this, this play is really, really interesting in that, obviously, you know, it's written in 1945. Um, oh, is that right? Written in 1944 or 1945? Um, well, it was performed 1945 to six, yeah. so it might have been written that year. Um, but obviously it's set in, you know, 1912 in Edwardian society. You know, that's a really significant choice by J.B. Priestley to set it then. Because obviously while there were still existing inequalities in Britain in the 1930s and 1920s and the 1940s, you know, Edwardian society was a really pivotal moment in British history and it was really a hinge point between what Britain would later become and also what Britain had been in its dwindling empire and its fading fortunes. So I just wanted to start by kind of contextualising what Victorian society was like for most of the working class, um, but, you know, even before uh, the reign of Queen Victoria ended. And I just want to look at this quote from uh, Dostoevsky. Uh, which he made when he was walking down Haymarket in London. And this is just his, his thoughts on, on the sad sight he saw of the Victorian working class in London. The streets can hardly accommodate the dense ceiling crowd. The mob has not enough room in the pavements and swamps the whole street. All this mass of humanity craves for booty and hurls itself at the first comer with shameless cynicism. Glistening expensive clothes and semi-rags and sharp differences in age, they are all there. In the Haymarket, I noticed mothers who brought their little daughters to make them ply that same trade. The little girls, aged about twelve, seize you by the arm and beg you to come with them. I remember once again, um, I remember once among the crowd of people in the streets, I saw a girl, no older than six, all in rags, dirty, barefoot and hollow-cheeked. She'd been severely beaten and her body, which showed through the rags, was covered in bruises. What struck me most was the look of such distress, such hopeless despair on her face, that to see that tiny bit of humanity already bearing the imprint of all that evil and despair was somehow unnatural and terribly painful. I went back and gave her sixpence. She took the small silver coin, gave me a wild look of fright and surprise, and suddenly ran off as fast as her legs, legs could carry her, as if afraid that I should take the money away from her. And you know, I think that's a really interesting um, quotation from uh, the Russian author Dostoevsky there. Because that was the realisation that many foreigners had when coming to London. This was supposed to be the capital, financial capital of the world, the capital of industry. And yet when people came here to the heart of the, the greatest empire in the world at the time, what they were really shocked by was the state that most British people lived in. Mm -hmm. And it was in complete contradiction of what you would expect because yeah, Britain's this mighty empire, but most of its citizens are illiterate. Most of its citizens are starving or involved in crime and poverty. 
and people were shocked and appalled. And obviously that's significant because, you know, Karl Marx, you're going to come and talk to about a little bit later. You know, when he came to London, he was shocked by this as well. It led to the rise of socialism and Marxism. Also a bit um, very clear overlap with our very first episode, yeah. William Blake's London. Um, yeah. It's almost it's almost like him and Dostoevsky are speaking with the same voice there. 100%. Um, now, what's interesting is obviously in Victorian Britain, you know, there was a large degree of ignorance around the lives of those living in poverty. And Charles Dickens, in his work, you know, he really battled and raised awareness about that. And for a while, through Dickens's work, it was raised in the public consciousness that, yes, there's a problem with people living in poverty. But most of the Victorian response was what you call moralising. They said that, ultimately, these people who are living in these slums, these people who are living in poverty, it's their fault. It's their responsibility. That we live in a system where, if you work hard, if you get ahead, if you follow, not the American dream, but the British dream in this instance, then you can make a success of yourself. And they often pointed towards um, you know, a few working class people who'd gone out to the far reaches of the empire in India and, and Sri Lanka and different parts who, who'd made uh, you know, great wealth for themselves. And they looked at that as proof that this was a fair system and that anyone caught up in the slums of Manchester or uh, Birmingham or London, it was very much down to themselves. But there's a really interesting thing that happens at the dawning of the Edwardian era, which really, really challenged this. And that's something called the, the Roundtree or the Roundtree Report, uh, which links with, uh, if any of you are fans of those fruit pastels by the Roundtree, that's the exact same uh, family. And this really kind of broke through to uh, the middle class and the upper classes and made them very much aware of what was actually happening in the society around them. Um, the Roundtree Report was based in the uh, northern town of York, which at the time was not particularly well known for its working class community, wasn't particularly seen as, as a problem area. And what they did is they interviewed 11,560 families in just 388 streets. And they conducted a forensic investigation on what their lives were like, uh, what the day-to-day -day experience was like to be a, you know, a working class family, how they got by, the sacrifices they made, um, and they really went into great detail. And this report was so significant for, for how it changed the way British society thought the working class. So I want to read you a quick excerpt from uh, one of the pages that looks at uh, just one family. Uh, there is only one water tap for the whole block. There are no sinks, slops, which were basically where people would go to the toilet, being emptied down the street grating. There are two closets, which mean toilets, in the yard, but only one is fit to use and is shared by 15 families. So that's 15 families just using one toilet. And that was commonplace in this town of York and obviously by extension in London, Manchester and all of the urban environments in England at the time. Now, this was really interesting because it, the Victorians and you know, now the Edwardians had always believed that slums were these rare instances that you might get them in a few places like London or Manchester, but that it wasn't the case. And what was so effective about this report is that it was looking at York, which was seen as this kind of like very historical town. So it was really shocking for people who lived in London to find out that it, this just wasn't just there, yeah. in this one international city, it was happening across the country. But what was really significant about this report is that it didn't just look at what life was like for those living in poverty, it really digged down and investigated why people were living like this, what caused them to have this, this nature of existence. And the report raised this issue of a vicious circle caused by low wages, which led to people having poor health, which led to people losing work, which led to people, you know, basically starving. And, you know, he really kind of breaks down through these families, through all these case studies of exactly why this is happening. Um, 
there's just one really interesting report where he says this. And let us clearly understand what merely physical efficiency means. A family living upon the scale allowed for must never spend a penny on railway fare or omnibus. They must never go into the country unless they walk. They must never purchase a halfpenny newspaper or spend a penny to buy a ticket for a popular concert. They must write no letters to absent children for they cannot afford to pay the postage. The children must have no pocket money for dolls, marbles or sweets. The father must smoke no tobacco and must drink no beer. The mother must buy never any pretty clothes. Should a child fall ill, it must be attended by the parish doctor. Should it die, it must be buried by the parish. Finally, the wage earner must never be absent from his work for a single day. So what this report really did effectively was get rid of this stereotype and myth that, oh, well, if, if you're poor, well, you drink too much. Or yep. you're, you're kind of, you're, you're wasting your money. You're not being frugal enough. You're not saving. And it made clear, as is the case today, really, that for people living in the breadline or living in poverty, that it's not through financial mismanagement. It's because they have so little money that they have to count every penny. And that one little setback, like, you know, someone getting ill could be disastrous. That, you know, there were families who were so poor that if the church didn't pay for their child to be buried, they would have no means to, mm. you know, pass on their loved ones. So it's one of the first kind of official refutations of the, the bootstraps argument. Yeah. You, you know, if you're poor, sort yourself out. Um, so it's, it, it, I think it's, that's a very important thing to consider when we talk about the, the almost like the national consciousness. Yeah. And that 100% challenged the belief up until now that was just down to how hard you worked. Because yep. it looked at this the way that once you're on low wages, you're trapped, you don't have means for escape. And it was also very humanising in that, you know, Roundtree was not a uh, socialist, wasn't someone who was politically revolutionary. He was just 28 when he helped have this published. He was from a very successful family uh, who had kind of been immigrants to this country. And what he did is he looked at the human cost of poverty and that it wasn't just alcoholics, it was people who had families but who couldn't take their children to concerts, who couldn't educate their children, mm-hmm. who couldn't take them for walks in the countryside, who, you know, who couldn't afford toys for them. And this kind of broke through the stereotype of these venal, corrupt, you know, alcoholics. These, like, these are real families. And the report yep. was not only forensic in the evidence it provided, but humanised these people living in poverty. And it had a massive shockwave in British politics. On the day it came out, Churchill went and bought it. And speaking in Blackpool later that same day, he said it made the hairs in his body stand up, that it shocked and repulsed him. And, you know, at the time, kind of, he was, you know, not, he was obviously not a socialist a politician. So for him to have that response shows how it kind of broke through. Again, interestingly, at Balliol College in Oxford, uh, where many of the kind of the future mandarins and civil servants and politicians of the country were being educated, uh, one tutor there said, you know, take this report uh, and you, it's your duty to go out and find how the wealthiest, wealthiest nation on earth allows their citizens to live in poverty. And that was particularly relevant because one of those pupils who was before him was William Beveridge, who would go on to write the William Beveridge report in 1942. Um, and, you know, so this report it led to the kind of the formation of liberal trade unions coming together to form the Labour Party. It influenced the thinking of famous socialist authors like H.G. Wells and uh, George Bernard Shaw. And, you know, it influenced the Webbs as well, who were crucial in the early days of the Labour Party and providing that intellectual weight. So it was hugely transformative and influential in the rise of socialism in Britain. And I just want to skip forward to 1942, 1943, when Priestley is recording his podcast, well, not podcast, there's that slip there, uh, (laughs) is doing his kind of uh, broadcast to the people of Britain in World War II. 
because despite the the breakthrough that the Roundtree report offered, if you're a socialist looking at Britain, not enough has changed. There were various issues that prevented this. So there was obviously the Wall Street crash and the Great Depression in the 1930s, which led to rising unemployment. There was Britain's uh, declining status in the world and declining industry as a result of World War One, And what that meant is that for life, for the working class in Britain in 1945, wasn't so different to how it was in Edwardian Britain. So, you know, Priestley in the 1940s during the war has this unique position. He's probably the second most popular broadcaster after Winston Churchill. And, you know, I think it's really important when you study this play that you bear that in mind, that as ridiculous as it seems, Priestley was the equivalent of Britain's Got Talent or the X Factor, I'm a celebrity, get me out of here, yeah. in World War II Britain. Families would gather around and listen to his broadcasts. And the tone of these was incredibly optimistic. Unlike Churchill, who offered a kind of defiant spirit and kind of talking about, you know, we're going to push back and it's going to be a tough fight. Priestley was always looking to the future, always looking to the world that they would build when they survived the, the threat of tyranny that the Nazis offered. And he was always talking about kind of making Britain a better place. And these families are gathered around and they're listening to these, you know, kind of like the subtext here is socialism. We're going to come together. We're going to make sure everyone's treated fairly. We're going to take care of our soldiers. And he was hugely influential with his messaging in this. But also Priestley in this moment knew that he had a very unique opportunity. As a result of World War II and the pressures Britain faced, the social classes had really come together. They'd kind of gotten rid of their prejudices. You know, it wasn't perfect, but a lot of progress had been made. Kind of forced together, wasn't it? It was uh, yeah. like the, the nature of what, they, what the, the whole country had been through. Um, it, was diff- it was, I imagine, um, much more difficult to draw lines yeah. like uh, along, well, to draw divisions along class lines than it was um, in Edwardian times when the play was set. I mean, when you've got the, you know, the blitz and the bombs are falling you, the bombs aren't going towards mansions or slums. They're falling anywhere. Yeah. They will, really, whether or not you're in London or Manchester. Um, and also, obviously, you have the Beveridge Report, which is really influential for um, you know, socialism in, in 1942, which recommends things like uh, the NHS and kind of like increasing the numbers of pupils in education. And, you know, Priestley, I think, realised in, in the final years of World War II that Britain had a unique opportunity to fix the mistakes of the past. You know, a unique opportunity to address those issues that had been highlighted 40 years before in the Beveridge Report, but, oh wait, sorry, in the Roundtree Report, but that not enough had been done about. And I think in those years when he was writing this play, I think it's really important to imagine him writing with a sense of urgency, writing with a real mission, writing with a real purpose. And for me, I would agree with what you said there, Al. This is a piece of political writing before it's a piece of art. In many ways, it's quite contrived. It all points towards very clear themes. It's not like uh, Jekyll and Hyde, where we're left with as many questions as we are with answers about the, the, you know, the human soul, etc. It's very clear what we're It's una- unambiguous in its uh, overall message, definitely. 100%. Would you say that Priestley was a, um, a utopian thinker? Um, I think, yes. I think, I think it's fair to say that he does believe that socialism provides those answers and he offers a fairly on nuanced look at, at the ills of society. Mm-hmm. But then also he highlights obvious problems and obvious faults in, in, in Edwardian society and in the society he was writing in that did need to be addressed. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just think it's really important to bear in mind how Edwardian society was changing and Priestley's sense of urgency when he mm. was writing this play. Right, yeah. So that, that was really interesting and there's lots of things there that um, 
that you can use to really embed your understanding of why this play was written, how it came to how it came to pass. Um, but we were talking just before we recorded this that it, what's a real danger within Inspector mm-hmm. Calls is is that you end up instead of writing a, an essay on literature, you write, you write an essay on politics or history. Mm-hmm. So even though this is the context episode, we do want to try and provide you with a way into the a way of using the context to access the text mm-hmm. to give you a de- an understanding of the characters um, of the events of the language that's used and the way that it's structured so in order to do that you I, I think um, I often when I'm teaching this avoid teaching specific dates even things like the Roundtree report I would be I'd want to have an awareness of it without yeah. really um, explicitly mentioning it in an answer what I do think is worth um, having a really kind of secure knowledge of is the philosophy that Priestley subscribed to. And this is a philosophy that um, people still, well, it's a very divisive one. People think that it's, it kind of holds, some people believe it's hold the answer, like those ut- utopian thinkers, the answer to all the Earth's ills, whilst others think of it as a, a kind of like a murderous doctrine, which is responsible for the deaths, literally, of millions of people, tens of millions of people. And that is, and that theory is Marxism, the theory, the economic theory um, of Karl Marx, 19th century German philosopher, um, which was used to inform many, well, two kind of prominent 20th century governments, that of Soviet Russia and communist China. Um, and it's an economic theory primarily, which subscribe to the belief that the history of the world is the history of class struggle. So Ted's just been talking about middle class, um, working class, upper class in, in Britain. Um, but Marx saw this as something that was applicable to all societies throughout history all over the world. So a really kind of easy example might be um, slavery in colonial America. Mm-hmm. Marx believed that there was always going to be a ruling class, so the, the, the slave owners, um, and then a exploited class, the slaves, and then history moved in this kind of cyclical dialectic where the this thesis the way that things the way that things were um in some kind of um, turmoil was upturned into a antithesis to the opposite and then in from the ruin ruin of that came the the synthesis so we've got the kind of like the the mixture of the two states. So for let's let's say for slaves, the thesis was slaves and slave owners. The antithesis was the American Civil War. The synthesis was emancipation. But this this carries on because then um, African-Americans were seen as second class citizens. They didn't they didn't have the same civil rights as white people. And the the process continues. Mm -hmm. So to the civil rights movement and then to to today, you can look at it as Black Lives Matter. So so similar to the sort of vicious circle. Yeah, exactly. It's it's, it's seen as a cycle. Um, So Marx was writing very much. Um, against against capitalism because he just saw it as the latest manifestation of this cycle Uh, that in the 19th and 20th century it was the struggle between those who controlled the means of production so they're the people like Arthur Burling uh, subtly represented in the play by Arthur Burling and his family and those who didn't they were they that's uh, um, Eva Smith and Daisy Brenton and Edna quietly in the background and Edna as well yeah of course Edna forgotten hero yeah Um, and and Marxism can be split quite helpfully, I think, across, along economic lines and also social lines. Mm-hmm. So to start with economic, um, Marxism was, was, Marx was very critical of capitalism. Actually, I should just say, um, there's, a, there's kind of like a rough equivalence that we're making here between Marx and, so, and Priestley. Uh, Priestley was probably not a, a pure Marxist, but he was a socialist. 
and anyone who um, subscribes to socialism by extension does subscribe to um, aspects of Marxism. Yeah, the way to think about it is that he would agree with, uh, if I'm saying it right, the prognosis of the problem, but not necessarily the uh, solution offered. So I yeah. think they would agree that the on what the problem is. Yeah. They don't necessarily agree on... Prognosis and diagnosis. There we go. Yeah, that's okay. It. But, but even, even on that diagnosis, there is still a lot of... Uh, there will still be a lot of overlap um, yeah. in terms of what... what um, it's just... It's, it's almost like just difference of degree. Yeah. Like how, how do you... How kind of violent are you in revolution or how extreme do you go in terms of things like state ownership? But if we look at the economic arguments, which Marx and by extension Priestley subscribed to, um, it was the idea that well, the, what they didn't like about capitalism primarily was uh, the idea of work being completely insecure, that workers themselves were means to an end and not ends in themselves. So it put profit above people. You are necessarily objects. You're just cogs in a machine if you go to work in a capitalist system and you can be cast off at any moment. So there's kind of like a, almost like an emotional and... Um, it's a social issue as well, but if you think about like the, the way that that the way that you see yourself in that system is yeah. that you, you have no real inherent value. You're, just, you're only worth as much as you can produce. And then also, there's this idea that capitalism itself, and we've we've seen this in our lifetime, um, and you see it all the way through capitalism, it necessarily booms and busts. So there are there are periods of great um, progress and great wealth, and then there are crashes. Mm -hmm. So we saw that in 2008 with a financial crash. We're not gonna... You guys won't remember this, but that was uh, a lifetime ago. So yeah, sorry, te teachers listening will probably remember that. Um, but also, like m most catastrophically and most famously, was the Great Depression in the nineteen thirty in nineteen twenty nine to into the nineteen thirties, where the whole world economy essentially collapsed, yeah. caused huge huge unemployment, and actually caused real upheaval in terms of world politics. So we look at to lead to the rise of Nazism. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it, it, so what priests, what Marx would say, and what priests would, would pro probably and I think definitely agree with is that capitalism itself as well as being kind of cruel and cold-hearted in the way that it treated its workers was actually conducive to these cyclical crises these crises were a necessary part of capitalism and even today you speak to people who work in in finance or um, like le leaders of industry they accept that you know recession is part of the game. Yeah. It's a it's a price that you pay for the kind of progress that, that we've made. And also a quick disclaimer for the English Network podcast: we're not coming down on either side here. We're just simply we're just simply dis exploring the ideas. Um, we do think that it's worth, even though we 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 acknowledge that this is a very one sided piece. Yeah. Um, you you still should probably you you want to be aware of the of the problems that were being diagnosed. And I, I think for me as a kind of a a pet peeve. I think that's something that's really important. Having marked uh, this exam for the Inspectacles answers for both Edexcel and AQA, what you often see is kind of lines like pre Priestley, or we see the uh, evils of capitalism. We see how uh, Mr. Burling represents the greed, greed and the selfishness of the middle yeah. class. And I think it just you know if you look at the band six, particularly for AQA, it wants that critical exploratory kind mm -hmm. of tone. If you are just saying that this shows the evils and the ills of capitalism and how you know the Edwardian middle classes were, um, you know, venal and corrupt, then that's not really critical because you're just kind of taking that at face value. Yeah. This is priestly portraying um, history and politics and social classes in yeah. a certain way. I think I think if I tell my pupils that any introduction on Inspector Calls, 
explain what it is. Yeah. So what an inspector calls J.B. Priestley's polemic, a, pol- a one-sided political attack yeah. against capitalism in the class system. And, and that's what it was. And that's yeah. what it was. Regardless of whether he was right or wrong and whether you agree or disagree, you cannot deny that this was a contrived piece to attack a certain way of thinking um, and a certain way of um, kind of like the way that society had been organised historically. And just as a, you know, we're going to get into that in the future episodes and it's really interesting. But I think this, this text can be understood and can be taught in a two-dimensional way without yeah. that appreciation that Priestley does have an agenda here. He is pushing for political upheaval. He is pushing for a change in uh, perspectives. And it's the same if you were looking at work by Anne Rand, you know, kind of at the shrugged, you'd be looking very much at yeah. her agenda, her political yeah, beliefs. Yeah, yeah. Just because, you know, you may agree or may not agree yeah. with it, doesn't mean you should be I just thought it was important to say, because we were doing some pre-reading for this, and uh, a critic, uh, a, a writer, I think, um, said that um, in his spectacles is very much the, the message that teachers are indoctrinating children with yeah. um, and maybe maybe that's the case sometimes, I don't think but it's happening intentionally no but but it, I just do think it's really worth a, a kind of just understanding like you said what it what it actually is that um, it's not truth it's um, it's an opinion yeah. it's an opinion <clears throat> so Burling's speech in Act One is is it's used to make him seem like a pompous and unlikable character, definitely. Um, but it's also used to dismantle all of capitalism's kind of economic doctrine. Mm-hmm. So he goes through and talks about the 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 idea of low costs and high prices, which to the audience is obviously obviously means low wages um, and charging the most for it. It's this like Marxist idea of profit being little more than theft or being yeah. tantamount to theft. It's just an expression of greed. Um, but then he also talks about the Titanic. Um, so he's shown to be kind of hilariously wrong in his prediction, saying, oh, it's unsinkable, absolutely unsinkable, that determinate... Uh, Brilliant use of dramatic That intensifier, sorry. Yeah, so that intensifier absolutely making him seem just kind of like so certain in, in his stupidity. Mm-hmm. Um, but also like the idea that, you know, why did the, time, why did the Titanic sink? It's because of low costs, like they yeah. used cheap iron um, and obviously it hit an iceberg and it, and it sank. So these low costs are shown Spoiler to be alert. disastrous, sorry. Um, and then this idea, he also talks about how war is being imp- as being impossible thanks to capitalism. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, this is, this, this is just hilariously incorrect. Like Priestley is contriving him to be an idiot. He's yeah. contriving him to be foolish and, and by extension showing capitalism to be idiotic. It's so foolish. significant, really, you know, that opening act is kind of dominated by Mr. Burling. Yeah. It's kind of it's very much his platform and he's completely sent up through the use of this dramatic irony as uh, as arrogant, as uh, foolhardy, as you know, as having all these kind of like yeah. convictions which bear bear no fruit and prove him to be foolish. Yeah. And that's completely intentional by Priest at this mm-hmm. point. Um, and then he, and then possibly the most the, the most nuanced point of that is where he talks about the prosperity that his children can look forward to. Mm-hmm. Like they're going into an age that he says that they're going into an age of like unrivaled wealth. Yes. That they've got huge amounts of opportunity. Obviously, technological progress will bring them great happiness. And if we're thinking about this from a Marxist perspective, um, we're thinking that basically this idea that wealth equals like moral superiority is just yeah. a such a warped way of looking at the world from a Marxist and pr- from Priestley's perspective. And also the idea that capitalism always seems to offer, and you know, the uh, extinction uh, protesters at the moment point to this yeah. as well, always seems to offer you know, continued growth, continued te- technological development that's never ending, yeah. which of course just, I mean, first of all, isn't possible. And second of all, you know, is... Well, I, I, don't think it's the, it, I don't think the argument is that it, is that it doesn't... Um, provide this because it because we we're living you know we're recording this on a phone that's made possible by capitalism. Of, like, it's just it's just at what cost? 
at but, what cost does that come? Is it the cost of work? Is it the cost of? Is it the cost of works in the factory here, or is it the co- um, when in the time that the play is dealing with, or is it the cost of like, outsourced um, workers in sweatshops in in far, in far East Asia? Um, it's there's, then, a, there's always then, a human cost to progress. But that, then which I think also ignores the inevitable points of tension and crises that capitalism leads to, in that capitalism always creates bubbles, and those bubbles yeah. always burst. And that's what and, 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 and Burling doesn't really appreciate. Yeah, that and, that, and that's the other thing about him about that that what that short-sighted idea when he's talking about prosperity is that remember we said that Marx a Marxist in priestly would, would believe and subscribe to and and would be shown to be actually 100% correct here is that capitalism was conducive to cyclical crises yeah. which did cause political upheaval which did lo- lead to actual world wars that, which really can be seen as a as a, uh, a catalyst for what was the most violent um, century in in Human the, in, in human history, yeah. So, so Burling's speech, like, he, it's almost like Priestley gets all that out of the way for early doors. Yeah. Uh, the economic arguments of capitalism, on the same page. yeah, is is are all uh, all foolish. Um, and Burling is is the vehicle to show that. Gerald Croft as well, obviously. Um, there's this there's this strange um, subversion of the word duty, which I think is worth looking at, where mm-hmm. they talk about um, where Burling talks about his duty to keep costs low. Um, and you know, we, we think of duty as this kind of like moral obligation to mm-hmm. to a greater good. Um, and to hear Burling and then later Mrs. Burling use that word, if we're talking about that that linguistic point, it's, it's this idea that that Marx saw um, Marx and Priestley. By, by, and, Marx, and by extension Priestley, and this is how you should write it, like, uh, um, that a Marxist view and by extension Priestley's view would be that capitalism and its kind of materialism and consumerist approach has really warps people's morals, it warps their very minds. And I think as well, from Mr. Burling is an interesting character from that perspective as well, because we see him as someone who's incredibly anxious about social class, mm-hmm. in that when he's, um, when he's talking to Gerald, he kind of says, you know, how are your parents reacting to Sheila here? I went through the same thing with Sybil's parents. Yeah. And we, we can almost, you know, see from that that he, he's been made to feel conscious of his social class. You know, we get the idea that mm. he's had to work his way up towards some degree of relative success. Obviously, he's obsessed with his knighthood from the very beginning. And that does link in with kind of the Marxist criticism of capitalism, that it's this status game where you're constantly obsessed with climbing up, that it makes you anxious and worried about your worth yeah. based on this arbitrary concept rather than who you are actually as a person. Yeah. And I think Mr. Burling perfectly represents those anxieties more than anyone yeah. else in this play. He's obsessed about social class mm-hmm. because I think more so than Gerald and Mrs. Burling, he's not been born at the top of that ladder. Yeah. He's climbed it and he wants to continue climbing it. And that's why perhaps more than some of the other characters, he does have contempt for those beneath him because I think when he looks at them, he, he fears that he sees himself. Yeah, definitely. Um, I remember the, it, in the stage directions, he even speaks his speech is, has to be provincial. Yeah. So it, that, that's talking, that's alluding to an accent that he had, that he comes from humble beginnings um, and is sees himself as self-made. He, he, he has won at this game to an extent, yeah. but the class system means he will never truly belong where he, where he kind of like, he's in this kind of like um, this state of limbo that he can never really achieve. He'll never be with Mrs. Burling and Lord and Lady Croft that's just not yeah. rea- realistic for him. Anyway, that that you have stepped on my toes a little bit there. Apologies, I'll forgive yeah. you. Um, because that takes us on to this social critique that Marx and subsequent Marxist thinkers um, have had on capitalism and what it does. So there's a, the way to, to boil this down, Ted's already talked about anxiety. Um, Marxism and Priestley would, have, would subscribe to the idea that, Mar- that um, capitalism 
makes people, the people who live and, uh, and ostensibly benefit from the system, um, anxious, competitive, conformist, and politically complacent. So I want to go through those four ideas and look at how they apply to the characters. So the anxiety that we've just spoken about with Mr. Burling, he's insecure about his social class, he's his wife's social inferior, um, he has his provincial speech, he's very, he's desperate to get across to Gerald about that he's going to be a knighthood and to reassure late Lord and Lady Croft who conspicuously aren't there because they possibly don't, don't um, approve of the marriage. And my favourite, one of my favourite things with Arthur Burling in a moment where he really degrades himself is how he apologises for his daughter's almost low birth mm. to Gerald and he says, you sure you don't yeah. mind? And how he's kind of like, yeah. forgives him immediately for and it, choosing it, it, his And daughter. again, the, the warped relationship between Arthur and Sheila, I think is, re- is again, mm. is, is, is kind of this it shows this attack on the system they were living in. But if we just, if we just go through the characters and look at how, how is their anxiety represented. So Eric Burling, possibly the most anxious character there, he's, he's lost, he's half shy, half assertive, he's an alcoholic, mm-hmm. he, doesn't know, he doesn't have any direction in life, he doesn't know himself, he's, he's, he's anxious almost about everything. Yeah. He's, he has um, terrible relationships with everybody, his, his family and then later with Eva Smith. Um, and then if we look at Sheila Burling, she's insecure about her appearance. Um, she's insecure about her relationship with Gerald. She feels that it's, it's kind of, it's not what she envisioned. Um, and that leads to, obviously, um, unfolds as the, as the play unfolds. Gerald has, we can call them commitment issues. He's not committed to his, his, uh, his, well, yeah, his prospective marriage to Sheila, um, and then we've got Mrs. Burling is probably the least the least secure. anxious. I mean, I'd say Gerald maybe isn't anxious because he's almost quite lazy and. But um, I, I do feel like he's maybe is feels just constrained by social role a little bit, and I think yeah. maybe there's part of him on a sympathetic level that perhaps is interested. But the aristocracy are definitely the least affected yeah. by that anxiety. But yeah. it's the people, it's the people who are in the rat race, the ones who are struggling, who are really kind of like churned, but churned up. And I think Priestley does kind of quite like, subtly convey that with the way he looks at their reactions mm-hmm. to the inspector. Who's the character who's the least phased? Mrs. Yeah. Burling. And it's not that she's got nothing to hide, because mm-hmm. obviously she, she doesn't really particularly like revealing the fact that she did treat uh, Eva so torridly. Yeah. But ultimately, she cares less because she knows she can't be touched. Yeah. And that does represent, at a certain time, yeah. kind of the way the aristocracy in Edwardian society and in, in interwar Britain as well were removed from this world. They were kind of above the law to an extent. Mm-hmm. And you know, they carried themselves in a way where... They yeah. were outside the system. And, you know, the, the aristocracy, what's important to bear in mind is if, if you're talking about how um, capitalism is merely the latest incarnation of this class struggle, mm-hmm. well, they've been in the top from the feudal system. Yeah. So no wonder they feel so kind of le- the least anxious because they've Definitely. always been in the top. Definitely. To be in the aristocracy, it means that your blood is literally seen as better than someone else's yeah. because your great-great-granddad owned a cast or some nonsense. And, it's that, and, and that's something that, that Priestley wants to get across about the class system is that it's privilege which is unearned. So, yeah. so Gerald and Mrs. Burling are beneficiaries of, of um, their class birth. and of, of their birth. It's unearned privilege. Um, so if we just keep going. So that's anxiety ticked off. If we go down to, com- to competitive, the idea that, that capitalism makes people competitive, we look at Mr. Burling. He's obsessed with success. He's obsessed with titles. Mm-hmm. He's talking about Gerald's business, Croft, Crofts Limited. He's comparing them all the time. Yeah. Um, so he, that's his competitive nature, and, and capitalism is competitive naturally. Mrs. Burling is very competitive. This is where she really comes into her own. She, she has no real compassion for her fellow human beings, despite her charitable intentions. Like there's that hypocrisy there. 
Um, she guards her name and status jealously, violently yeah. even. She's vicious in response to Eva calling herself Miss Sperling. Um, and then we've got Sheila, who has Eva Smith sapped on a jealous whim. So just because she feels that she looked nicer in a dress um, and that she felt like she felt that she was made to feel a little bit infer- inferior by her, she overreacts, driven by anxiety, driven by this competitive nature um, I, to, to get her fired with no real, and we'll go to complacency in a minute, with no real understanding of the consequences. And I think what's, what's interesting with Sheila Burling as well is consider the role that's carved out for her in society. Mm-hmm. She has to be competitive but as an aristocratic woman, or as a middle class woman, how can she be competitive? Well, she can't work really for her place. Mm. So the only thing she can really rely on are her attractiveness to male suitors. Yeah. And so that means that she becomes obsessed with her looks. So she's competitive about her appearance mm. because that's the only real means she has to earn a higher status or earn worth. Yeah. She's been told by that society that her, her looks and her kind of feminine qualities terms of attractiveness are the most important thing yeah so it's no wonder that that's what makes her anxious in that way she's competitive definitely and i think we i think just sitting here now talking about where we can go with this i think we might have to do another context episode um because i don't think we're going to get it all in um but if we if we keep moving through to um conformist uh sheila burling again uh, because what you were just alluding to was kind of like the the changing role of women and the and the um idea of uh, feminism and a feminist reading of this play which is which kind of almost warrants a whole new a whole other episode in itself uh, but if we look at the conformity of the characters Sheila Burling conforms and agrees to marry Gerald because her parents wish it despite the fact that he neglected her for a whole summer yeah. barely came near her is the quotation um, Mrs Burling she's obsessed with etiquette and social convention she's like this cliche of an upper class woman just look at the fact that she works in charity despite the fact that she has clearly no has care. no doesn't have any um, charitable instinct that's, uh, that's conforming yeah. to an expectation mm-hmm. and that very much links back to the Roundtree report in terms of the, uh, the moralising of the working yeah, class exactly. Looking yeah. down at them and blaming themselves. And then Eric and Gerald, they're both following in their father's footsteps, they're blindly perpetuating this yeah. capitalist cycle. There's no real thought going into their into like Gerald seems to do it more happily um, and more self assuredly, but Eric is still doing it, he like he still goes to the works, yeah. yeah, definitely. Um, and then finally, this idea of political complacency. So we, uh, we, we alluded or Ted alluded to before this idea of people living in bubbles or they, be, they have a very kind of set view of the way that the, way that the world works. So you talked about moralising in, in terms of poverty and just apologies for the construction noises in the background there. Um, we talked in, the, in terms of poverty is that, the, that at the time they believed that it was the fault of whoever was poor, that yeah. they, had to, they had to do that. They had to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and sort their own lives out. Um, Similar to that, I think, is this ignorance that poverty even existed. So if you look, if you look at someone like Sheila Burling, mm-hmm. um, the idea that she, she, had, she had what you would call a, a, a morality, um, and yet she had no real appreciation of the real world to apply that morality. So we, we can call her someone who is complacent in her view of the world. So it means that, like, despite having education, capitalist citizens are completely indifferent to politics. And you know, Marx would say that this suits the ruling class perfectly because it just means that it means that everyone's happy with that thesis, the way things are. There will be no kind of um, no tumult. Um, so Sheila, she's she is actually initially ignorant of what what were socialist instincts. So when she says these girls aren't cheap labour, they're people, yeah. um, she she's actually showing the fact that she values human beings and their intrinsic worth higher than she values their their what they produce. Their, so their their kind of like economic value. That's a, that's a socialist idea. I mean, yeah. it's a humanist idea, but it's a socialist idea too. And um, even in the fact that she's shocked by her father shows yeah. a little thought yeah, exactly. she's given to it before. Eric does the same thing as well when he says, why shouldn't they try for higher wages? But I think Sheila is the most interesting one. Um, 
And the way she acts, let's bear in mind, like she doesn't act, she doesn't um, fulfill those socialist instincts in her actions. She gets Eva Smith fired um, and sent destitute into the streets on for, no, for nothing more than a jealous whim, simply because she didn't like the way she made her feel in that moment. She lashes out violently with no real, um, with no real kind of understanding of what those what the consequences for Eva Smith would be. But then, interestingly, or or kind of like almost quite obviously, as the play progresses, Sheila becomes the the inspector's closest ally. Absolutely. She's the one who respects what he's saying. She turns on her family. She takes control of her relationship with Gerald. She just grows in stature and grows and grows until the end, where she's she's the one who's accepting responsibility. She becomes our moral compass, really. Yeah. yeah, and 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 the kind of like the the mouthpiece for that younger generation, the ones that Priestley hoped would lead Britain into this much more well, maybe if not a utopia, then a, a much more socially just society. Um, so. If we look at, again, just to go over it, anxious, competitive, conformist and politically complacent, that's a Marxist idea that we can attribute roughly to Priestley as well. That's the way he saw um, capitalism impacting uh, people, like the impacting people socially, not just economically. Um, and then like one final thing on that is this idea of, and I think this will probably lead into our next episode, which I think we are going to have to do on context. Um, and that's the idea of, um, marriage in in this in Edwardian society, so this bourgeois marriage being from what Marx saw as little more than an extension of business. Mm-hmm. So remember, he's writing in in if you think back to to episode one and two, post romantic age. Um, so with, along with all the stuff about the rejection of industry and urbanization um, and the embracing of nature and the kind of like the the rebel spirit, there was this changing attitude to love and what love should be. To, to imagine a, a marriage between a marriage being organized simply to bring two businesses together um, I mean to a modern audience we think that was quite kind of we, we, we react negatively to that mm-hmm. that we, we have that post-romantic sensibility but priestly I think is trying to make that point that Marx that Marx wrote about is that when you when you arrange marriages along economic lines or lines of status, uh, they're necessarily going to be unhappy because these two people are not fit. They, they're, they're not. They're not. Um, they don't love each other. They're not happy together. And that's obvious with Gerald and Sheila. Sheila's very much taken with Gerald in a kind of childish, girlish way, whereas Gerald is a little bit kind of detached um, and seems a little bit more experienced and, and, it, and not not interested necessarily in her. It just and I think it just neatly outlines what socialists say capitalism does in that it ultimately dehumanizes, objectifies, and commodifies everyone. Mm-hmm. Everything has a price. Everything's up for sale. Everything is negotiable. For Arthur Burling, even his daughter's uh, dignity and virginity. Yeah, so something that she, he's, he sees her as a commodity to be sold. Yeah, yeah definitely. So that, that, that pretty much sums up, I think, our first um, episode on context. I do think we're going to do a, a, a follow-up one, especially I think we need to look at issues of gender um, and objectification yeah. and how, and how that, was, that was seen both with Eva Smith but also with Sheila as well. Um, so thank you very much for listening. Um, we will be back soon with a follow-up to this. Um, but for now... That's everything. Bye, English nerds. Goodbye.